Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hi, thank you for joining me this Monday, November 27th. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving. You know, right before Thanksgiving, we shared with you some sound from the White House about how uh, pretty much everything we needed for Thanksgiving, uh, gas for our cars, food for our table, was going to be costing considerably less this year. Well, that good news continues. As part of the Bidenomics agenda, President Biden is announcing 30 new actions that are going to strengthen supply chains and make things more affordable for us. We are going to start today uh, with an interview. We have Daniel Hornung, uh, Deputy Director of the National Economic Council, to talk to us about all that, um, all these 30 new actions that President Biden is taking. Daniel, thank you for being here. Great to be with you. Uh, I want to start with uh, the Defense Production Act, which is something that, you know, a lot of us think of as, you know, a way to make sure that the security of the United States stays strong. But in this sense, it's being used to ease drug shortages. Can you tell me about that? Sure. Well, during the pandemic, um, the president directed that his Department of Health and Human Services use the, de- the Defense uh, Pr- Protection Act to make sure that uh, when shortages were arising for drugs and medical products, um, that um, we were able to step in and, and make more of those products and source things here in the United States. Uh, that was a key way that we were able to alleviate supply chain disruptions during the pandemic. And, you know, the president today is announcing that that's a tool that will, they will be able to use going forward to make sure that to the extent there are disruptions to our medical supply chains that uh, will make sure that Americans are able to get the drugs and the medical products that they rely on. You know, Daniel, before the pandemic, I bet there were a lot of us who, if we even um, understood the phrase supply chain really didn't think about it a whole lot. But, man, we really all got an economics lesson about what happens when it's disrupted. I have a I have a question about this. Um, it says that in the news release I got directly from the White House, it said it, the president is going to issue a presidential determination to uh, take some of these actions. Now, I know about an executive order. What is a presidential determination? Yeah, well, let me just start on the first part of your question, which, you know, the president is fond of saying, too, that, you know, most Americans hadn't heard about supply chains before the pandemic. But as we saw on our TV screens, the images of uh, ships at ports lining up and, and read about the high shipping costs and the delays all over the country, as we saw, you know, what that it meant for the price of goods that Americans uh, try to buy. I think it's something we all came to to understand. And I think a lot of the progress that we have seen in recent months in uh, inflation coming down from over 9% at the peak to just above 3% now, as you mentioned at the top of your program, some real relief in individual items, you know, the cost of gas down, the cost of certain groceries down, the cost of appliances and and, and furniture down over the last year. Um, I think we're, we're seeing that you know, when supply chains can heal, um, that it m- makes a real difference in lowering costs for American families. So what the president is doing today, is the, the presidential directive is you know, bringing together a set of administrative actions across the federal government 
say, what are the tools that federal government agencies have to make our supply chains more resilient, to make them work better, all with the goal of, over time, making sure that we don't have the kind of disruptions to our supply chains that led to real price increases over the last years. Uh, One thing also confused me, that there was going to be an effort to increase supply chain data sharing. I'm not even sure, Daniel, that I know what that means. (laughs) Well, here's what it means. Um, We want to make sure that the private sector, that our federal agencies have the tools that they need to spot when problems are coming up in our supply chains very early. If we know, if they have the monitoring tools and then they're sharing data across federal agencies and with companies across the country, let's say, for example, their delay is coming up at a certain port or we're seeing pretty unusual activity in, 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 in trucking or in shipping, um, that by sharing that information early, companies and government officials alike are able to take have the information that they need to take the necessary action to help alleviate some of those disruptions. Mm-hmm. Uh, that if we had understood that those challenges earlier uh, in, in the pandemic, that we could have acted sooner. And I know that there are also supply chain actions being taken with regard to renewable energy. Can you explain that as well? Sure. Well, we know um, that part of the challenge that we face on the energy front is that we're reliant on a system now where too much of our energy supply comes from overseas and and places that are politically or economically volatile. Uh, So we saw, for example, a big shock to energy markets after Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, Part of what the president has done is passed a legislative agenda that has invested significantly in building out renewable energy capacity right here in the United States. Everything from making clean energy products here, manufacturing them here, uh, to making sure that things like electric vehicle batteries are made here, uh, to producing the energy here. And when we do that, we make our supply chains, make our economy overall more resilient uh, because we rely less on uh, hostile actors abroad. Daniel, can you promise me that even if there's another pandemic, I will always have toilet paper? <laughs> Look, uh, the the actions that the president's announcing today is about making sure that those kinds of disruptions that we saw last time don't happen again. You know, part of the challenge uh, with something like a pandemic is it's hard to hard to see it coming. Uh, they're very rare, but. We know that by taking action to make our supply chains more resilient, we can be prepared even for some of the challenges that we can't identify today. Um, so, so that's really what this is all about. This also seems to tie in with the president's expressed desire to bring more production and manufacturing to the United States. Is that fair assessment? That's right. You know, the president thinks um, that doing so has a range of benefits creates good jobs and communities throughout the country, makes our economy more resilient so we're less reliant on uh, hostile actors across the world. And, you know, also, you know, this is not a desire to say let's make everything in the United States. Instead, it's a policy that says when it comes to critical goods, to things like semiconductors, uh, to things like energy, 
Let's make more of that in the United States because of the critical importance that it has for our economy. And let's boost our manufacturing capacity so that we're able to create good manufacturing jobs in communities around the country. In addition to some of this uh, data providing more resilient supply chains, I also thought it was interesting that some of this data is going to be used to map uh, potential human rights violations, things like where there's is there some place in the supply chain that's using child labor or forced labor? Um, That's an important part of this, isn't it? It is. And, you know, I think that the president has been clear that as we look to our international economic engagement, whether it's our trade uh, or anything else, um, that we need to not just look at this from a perspective of how do we, you know, put policies together that lead to the most economic growth, but instead, how do we put policies in place that promote growth while at the same time doing things like promoting worker well-being? So making sure that that our agreements incorporate uh, uh, labor, right? Mm -hmm. How do we make sure that we are incorporating environmental necessities? How do we make sure that on the human rights issues that you discussed, that that is part of our our international economic engagement, too? So all of those are a central part of what the president is announcing today and a a central part of his long-term international economic engagement. We... um we just have a little bit of time left, Daniel. If there are out of all of this news and, you know, the press release I got from the White House is a pretty long one. Out of all of this news, what is the important point or points that you really want my audience to take away from this? Well, look, you know, as we head into the holidays, um, Prices, as you said, are lower than they were last year for a range of things. Um, used cars and trucks, furniture and appliances, toys and TVs. And we've seen this progress even as wages are rising faster than inflation. But at the same time, I think the president is laser focused on doing everything he can to continue to lower costs for American families. Because supply chain disruptions were such a big part of what contributed to costs going up, uh, he's Uh, very, very focused on making sure that they don't happen again. Uh, He's also focused on what else we can do to lower costs for families. So that's why he's passed legislation to lower prescription drug costs, passed legislation to lower clean energy costs and health insurance premiums. It's why he has even more plans uh, that he's proposed to do things like lower childcare costs and education costs and housing costs. And while he's put forward those plans, unfortunately, uh, you know, Republicans in Congress have been more focused not on lowering costs for middle class families, but instead on lowering taxes for the wealthiest and for the largest corporations. So it's a very different economic vision. This president is very much focused on what he can do to lower costs for middle class families. Today's announcement is a big part of that. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us. Daniel Hornung is the deputy director of the National Economic Council. Daniel, come back anytime you have news to talk about, okay? Will do, especially as a Chicago native. That's right. Oh, where? Which part of Chicago are you from? I'm from Hyde Park. Oh, very cool. Lovely, lovely neighborhood. Very fancy. The very fancy Daniel <laughs> Hornung will per- join us in the future when the uh, National Economic Council has more good news to share with us. We are going to take a break right now. We're going to be back with more after this. 
Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Again, I hope you had a wonderful, relatively peaceful Thanksgiving. Um, we just finished the last of our leftovers for our leftover turkey just today. As a matter of fact, I had it for lunch um, and uh, hope everything was congenial, as congenial as can be when you have a large family gathering. Because these days, a large family gathering always means a kind of a range of opinions. And when you sit next to those relatives who only watch Fox Cable the discussions can get a little lively, but I hope everything was as good as it could possibly be for you and your family. <sighs> now we get ready for the next set of holidays. Woohoo! <clears throat> Time to get out your gift list. Anyway, um, there is political news today. Uh, there has been an agreement. As I'm sure you um, heard some way over the holiday weekend, that there are going to be 50 women and children released by Hamas hostages in exchange for 150 Palestinians, also women and children. Just um, 17 people have already made it through. Just this morning, it was announced that there are 11 more people in the pipeline 11 more people who have been turned over from Hamas to the Red Cross. The Red Cross will then get them to Israel, where they will be turned over to the Israeli Defense Forces and then taken to the hospital for an assessment. It appears um, that the truce, the temporary ceasefire, however we want to describe it, is going to continue potentially for another couple days, uh, Israel making the statement that as long as Hamas was willing to release hostages, that they would hold off on their assault of Gaza. That deal appears to be holding for now. Um, as, as I said about an hour before I went on the air, there was a statement released that the Red Cross has taken custody of 11 more hostages and that those hostages are currently being transported to Israel. So that's where things stand on that front. As long as hostages are being released and, it, you know, this isn't just we're going to release them just to buy ourselves more time. As you heard, there's, they're doing this on a three-to-one deal. For every hostage Hamas releases, Israel is releasing three Palestinians, a deal that um, seems to be working to everyone's satisfaction. The first 50 are women and children, women and children released by Hamas, women and children being re released by Israel. There was one young girl, and I mean like four years old young, who has dual Israeli-American citizenship. She was among those first released. Sadly, her mother was not released. Well, no, no. The child who was released, I believe both of her parents um, were 
killed in the attack. There's another child that was released whose mother was still being held by Hamas for whatever bizarro reason. So <coughs> it really is a situation that still is continuing to change moment by moment. Uh, later today in the four o'clock hour, we have um, political science professor Joel Ostro joining us. We He is, of course, an expert on Russia, so we're going to be getting an update on the situation in Ukraine. But he is also very well-versed in international politics. So we will touch on also what um, has been happening and continues to happen in Gaza. There was a report over the weekend. As a matter of fact, I think it came from the Associated Press that calls from the uh, front lines in Ukraine, calls being placed home by Russian soldiers seem to indicate that uh, these soldiers, they want out of this. The Associated Press um, obtained what they're calling secret recordings of Russian soldiers calling home from Kharkiv, Luhansk, Donetsk, those three regions in Ukraine. And um, there is um, a lot of um, (laughs) use of the F word in these calls, but the overarching message is they don't want to be there. You know, we see all these signs, like these phone calls and other signs, that the Russian soldiers, the people of Russia have really just had their fill. Vladimir Putin apparently is uh, pretty nervous about everything. The reports are that he has left the Kremlin and is hiding out at one of his many holiday houses. You just have to believe that there has to be a break coming soon. There has to be a break coming soon. All the signs are there. Maybe tomorrow morning we will wake up and things will be different and we will learn that Vladimir Putin has been ousted. We'll see. Oh, uh, by the way, you may have seen the reports that um, apparently there is a You know, they assess El Nino every fall, and El Nino looks like it is going to be particularly lengthy and strong, which tends to mean generally, not specifically, but generally, that here around in our area, we're going to have maybe a warmer and drier winter, which doesn't mean we can't still have a blizzard, just that that blizzard will probably be an outlier and not something that is going to make up the bulk of our winter weather. Uh, The good news about that is, yay, warmer winter. The bad news about that is, boo, warmer winter, which means that a lot of the bugs and the bacteria that would normally be wiped out might just get a chance to survive. (sighs) The Centers for Disease Control announcing that it is going to be a tough winter for illness. 
Um, not only do we have seasonal flu, which always um, is delightful this time of year, but they're saying COVID-19 is going to be a fixture of our lives. And for those of you who haven't heard about the new one, there is a new lung virus, RSV, respiratory syncytial virus or syncytial. I'm not sure. I'm not familiar with that word. It's not pneumonia. It's not COVID, but it's just as nasty. This is the one RSV that you have probably already heard about because it has started uh, in the infant population. And there have been many infants who have been extremely ill and a few have died because of RSV. There is a vaccine um, available for RSV. There's actually a child version and an older person version. One of my friends who is my same demographic, I asked them if they were going to get the RSV and they said, oh, no, because, you know, it really goes after little babies and I don't want to take away a shot that could go to a little baby. Well, as is the case with most vaccinations, those of us in the older demographic, we get special stuff. We had there's a special flu vaccine for you if you're 65 or older and uh, RSV. There's a special old person version of that vaccine as well. So uh, because our immune systems tend to not be quite as robust as younger people's, um, they tend to make vaccines a little stronger. There's a special uh, old people COVID vaccine. There's an old people flu vaccine. There's an old people RSV vaccine. And of course, if you haven't had your two doses of Shingrix, what are you waiting for? Um, I've known a few friends who've gotten shingles as an adult. And if you had chicken pox ever in your life, you have the virus that later in life comes out as shingles. Every person I've talked to said it was the most excruciating experience of their lives, that there's no pain like it. So, you know, pretty much just next time you're at your doctor or at your pharmacist, tell them what what is available for me. Any, anything you got, anything, anything you've got, I'll take. Because even with vaccines... You know, it's the vaccine isn't a promise that you won't get an illness. It isn't a promise that you won't get sick most of the time. But it is a promise that you're more likely to live through whatever happens to you. And I think that's worth it. Let's take a break and get started on our day right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local and progressive on WCPT 820. Of a lot to talk about today and... Um, I told you at four o'clock, Joel Ostro is going to join us. He's going to be here from four to five. Um, the rest of the day, we're going to introduce you to some uh, friends we've had on the radio before and some new friends. We are uh, we're going to talk about what is going on in Iowa. We are going to talk about what is going on in Pennsylvania. And we are going to talk about what is going on in our beloved neighbor to the north, Wisconsin. I um, want to start right now with what um, some things that are going on in in Iowa, but not just Iowa and not just Iowa. 
the entire United States, because we are now going to be talking with Liz Fleming, who is the national social media correspondent for the entire Courier line. And also she does some work for the Iowa starting line and is based in Iowa. Liz, how are you today? Hey, Joan. I'm doing well. I apologize. My dog definitely is going to chime in here in the background, but I'm doing well, and it's great to talk with you. It's great to talk with you, too. And um, we welcome dogs on this radio station. <laughs> we we absolutely welcome dogs. My dogs are usually quiet until the final hour of the show. I don't know what it is about the final hour of the show. <laughs> Maybe, you know, they're so excited that it's going to be over and then they're going to get fed. Um, but that's yeah. usually, yeah, you're lucky you're at the yeah, beginning. They must know. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I know. I'm looking outside. I'm like, could anything make my dog bark right now? There's probably going to be something <laughs> driving by or a tractor or construction. So we'll just play it by ear. Yeah. But good to know that he's welcome, even though he's quite loud and disruptive. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I was I was looking at your at your bio and how you got involved with the whole courier newsroom chain. And they found you because of TikToks that you were posting starting a couple years ago about Iowa news and politics. Tell me that story. Yes. So like many people in the year of 2020, I found myself very bored and kind of lacking connection with the outside world. Um, The shutdown was in full swing, and I downloaded this app that I heard of called TikTok. And the way it was pitched to me, it was kind of like, oh, you know, it's like Instagram, but it's all videos. And there are some people you might not know and um, it's supposed to be kind of humorous. Or there were a lot of teenagers using it to share dance moves or makeup trends. Um, but I downloaded it anyway, like any desperately bored person <laughs> did or would do. <laughs> so I found myself kind of making a couple videos here and there and posting online, but Um, when I started posting content about my life in Iowa or things that were going on in the state, whether politically or locally, or even some fun facts or historical facts, I realized that there were a lot of other Iowans on TikTok who were looking for the same kind of connection and community. So we were able to find ourselves a weird little corner of the internet to share, um, like-mindedness and any information that we knew about what was going on in our state. So that was kind of how I got involved in talking about what was going on in Iowa kind of on my own. Um, When I got a little bit of a following, I think I'm now up to about 60,000 on TikTok um, of people following me. Before um, it got to that number, I was kind of in the middle range, and I heard from the Iowa starting line, who basically approached me with the opportunity to do exactly what I was doing, but on their team. Um, so it's all content that I would want to know about and share anyway. And I had heard of the Iowa starting line and very much respected their work. Um, but they kind of approached me with the opportunity to take their articles and explain them to people. Like I had been explaining other news articles to my followers. So taking a big chunky article that might seem like it's flooded with a lot of political jargon and break it down for the average TikTok or TikToker, I guess that's the term for it, but um, making sure that the information is digestible and easily understood by the viewer. That's how I got involved in the Iowa starting line, and I've been with them for, gosh, probably a year and a half now. How do you decide what to cover? 
It's not entirely up to me. We do have a team that deciphers what articles would be important to explain to our followers. I mean, Iowa Starting Line does have their online presence and their website that has all of the articles, but kind of picking which ones would be prioritized for the week, I, they kind of come down the pipeline to me from our team of journalists and editors and social media teammates. Um, so by the time it gets to me, the team has strategized what's important to share, and we kind mm-hmm. of collaborate from there to relay the information, which is the fun part for me. Will you be attending um, the caucus, uh, the caucuses that are going to be what? And what is that? They're coming up pretty quick here. Yes, I believe they're in February. See, typically I would attend the Iowa Democratic caucuses, but that is Unfortunately, not an option this year. I think we're lost yeah. our first in the state status. <laughs> but, I, but, but I tell you what, there have been a lot of Republican presidential candidates coming through Iowa. So who knows if I'll have the opportunity to maybe um, go and speak to some of them and get their perspective on the election, the race. Mm-hmm. Are you still posting TikToks as well as doing other uh, forms, other using other platforms for career? Oh, yeah. So I actually, so I was working with the Iowa starting line for a year and a half, recently got on the Courier national team. So um, felt very lucky with that opportunity to kind of do what I was doing for the Iowa starting line on a bigger scale. So covering more of the national political stories and events that are happening. Um, So I joined the Courier team just a few weeks ago. um, And my first assignment was to go to Belvedere, Illinois, and interview a very special guest that they were having in the town. Yeah, tell me about that. <laughs> yes. So the career team had briefly welcomed me to the national team, um, kind of laid my work out for me as far as what I'd be doing with them in addition to the Iowa starting line. Um, but they warned me that there was going to be kind of a possibility of going to Illinois and interviewing a very important guest. They didn't quite specify who that guest would be. Um, but need I need to know, Liz. You don't need to know. <laughs> I know. I was kind of picking up the cues. Like they had sent me a text that had an American flag and like a pair of sunglasses. I'm like, okay, that could be a few different people. But it, it. But I of course put two and two together, and then they were able to make the announcement to me. I think a day before I actually left to go and meet the very important person that it was Joe Biden, and that Ooh. I would be interviewing the president. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, it, it was surprising. I I felt a little nervous for a while. It took me a little bit. I mean, as an amateur reporter, it's my first day kind of really locking down an interview with the Courier or one of the political candidates with Courier, and it ended up being probably the most important person I could interview. Yeah. <laughs> How'd it go? I hear you had a nice little personal exchange. I did have a very nice personal exchange, yes. So I um, was able to have some time with the president after he spoke to some UAW workers in Belvedere at <clears throat> excuse me, at a factory that was reopening. So the UAW factory had shut down earlier, I think it was about last year, um, and was going to be reopening, bringing back 4,000 jobs that had been lost, plus 1,000 new jobs. So they weren't just reopening the factory. They're revolutionizing the factory um, for the future of electric vehicles and creating more jobs in the process. So it was an exciting day. Everyone was really happy to be there. Um, Joe Biden was very excited. I mean, his administration put a lot of work in making sure that such a reopening could take place. 
Um, so spirits were high, and I was able to squeeze a few minutes in with the president after he spoke to the crowd. Um, yes, very personal exchange. It turns out Joe Biden is not someone that makes me more nervous from being around him. He kind of calmed my nerves just with how humane Aww. and chill he is. <laughs> um, so as soon as I shook his hand and introduced myself and he introduced himself, I really didn't have any more worries. Of course, you're a little nervous because it is the president, but I can't overemphasize how kind he was. Didn't he? I heard that he did something personal, though. <laughs> yeah, so um, setting the tone, we were in a factory setting and a lot of jobs were going to be coming back to the community, which is exciting. Um, I kind of informed the president that I was from the state of Iowa, and he made a comment. Obviously, he's been here quite a few times as a political candidate. It's one of the main stops that you go to. So he's familiar with my hometown of Dubuque and mentioned that that's a, um, where all the good Irish Catholic people live. <laughs> and I told him, yeah, you know, my family's been there for generations. My grandparents, relating to factory work, my grandparents were able to raise 10 kids on a factory salary back in the day. And he caught the 10 kids comment, he being President Biden, um, and said, oh, my goodness, your grandma, no purgatory for her. She's got to go straight <laughs> to heaven. And I, I, I'm like, oh, absolutely. Um, but then I kind of nodded and agreed with him. He asked if she was still around. And I said, yeah, she's, she's 91 years old, um, probably sitting in her apartment in Dubuque, Iowa. So we gave her a call. He insisted that we give my grandma Mary a call. <laughs> and she answered. <laughs> she she actually picked up the phone because I told her that I'd be interviewing the president and she insisted on being home and praying for me so everything oh. would go okay. So I knew I knew she was free so she answered the phone um and yep the the president wanted to talk to my grandma and thank her for being a good mom and for stressing the importance of family. It was a really heartwarming moment. I wasn't expecting that going into the day, but it was a wonderful memory that I'll always cherish and my grandma will always cherish. So your grandmother didn't think it was like you making a prank call. She really, you know, she was good oh. with it. Because <laughs> that would be my fear yeah. that a family member would go, oh, come on, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, especially in this day and age where people will make scam mm -hmm. calls with a voice that sounds like the president of the United States. But no, um, I was able to forewarn my grandma of where I would be that day and what I'd be doing. So I guess that kind of aligned to make sense, and she was trusting, and she asked me afterwards, was that really him? And I have it on video, too. It's kind of funny. The cameras are rolling, but she got off the phone after having a perfectly pleasant and cool conversation with the president, and I said, hey, Grandma, like, I'll call you later, and we'll, we'll talk about this. This is kind of bizarre, huh? But she, she asked, is that really him? And I was able to tell her, yeah, that was wow. not really him. So that was a weird day to be my Grandma Mary, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know... Um we see all kinds of stuff that Joe Biden does like this, a very kind of human approach to politics. And he doesn't do it you know, because there's perfect lighting and a camera ready to catch the moment of him being real. He just he just does it. And lots of times, like I remember uh, there was a time that he wanted to have a private conversation with the young boy who stuttered. And Joe Biden specifically took him over to the side, away from the cameras, to do that. I mean, yeah. aside from the fact that I, that I think he's a, a brilliant tactician and negotiator, I don't think you could ask for a more human president. 
I think you you hit the nail on the head with that one. That is exactly how I would describe my entire experience. Um, I mean, he's taking time out to call my grandma. (laughs) That says quite a bit about someone's character when they're already on a tight schedule. He had to go and talk to God knows how many other people after speaking with me, but he took the extra time to really stress what's important to him as a person, which says a lot about him. Um, and how he leads and how humane he is with the people that he encounters. I'm speaking to Liz Fleming, who's a reporter with the Courier Newsroom Group and whose grandmother is now on like a first name basis with President Joe Biden. (laughs) We are going to take a break and we're going to continue to talk about Liz's work when we come right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm joined by Liz Fleming, who's the national social media correspondent for the Courier Newsrooms and the Iowa starting line. She uh, is an Iowa native and is going to be reporting on all of the political doings that are going to be heating up over the next couple of months there. Before we move on to your other reporting, though, Liz, I'm new to TikTok and I'm not quite sure what to do with it. Oh, come on, you know, I'm old. I started on Facebook, you know, I thought that was like I was cutting edge. And now I'm on yeah. Instagram and threads and I've downloaded TikTok and I don't know how to find anything. Like I looked up your name and there's two Liz Flemings. How am I supposed to know which one is you? Well, you are in such good company. I feel like there is always something new online, some new social platform or way of communicating. So don't ever feel bad about not understanding the platforms right away. They are kind of like a second language or a third or fourth. I don't know about you, but it is like learning a new language sometimes. Um, so be patient with it. TikTok is a really smart app. Um, it's very intuitive. You might hear words like algorithm or for you page popping up. Um, It is because the data that goes into TikTok, your preferences, videos that you've previously liked or accounts that you've engaged with, kind of formulates a specified page for you to find content that you might also like. So my advice for you on TikTok is to find a few pages that you like, engage with their content, and then the rest will come to you kind of in this curated algorithm it's kind of it's wonderful it saves a lot of time as far as finding what you need because it is so intuitive and knows already what you need and what you want to Mm -hmm. see um but just give it a little patience and i think i think you'll find um that you'll like tiktok quite a bit i was interviewing many months ago um the young woman who was um the tiktok whisperer for john fetterman in his senate campaign and I turned oh. to her and I and I said, but 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 we're not supposed to download TikTok because it's it's you know it's going to give the Chinese all of our personal information. And she looked at me and she said, "Are you on social media?" And I said, "Yeah." She goes, "Do you have like an iPhone?" And I said, "Yeah." She goes, "So what part of your personal information do you think is private at this point?" And I was like, oh, good point. You know, it's like it's not exactly like my data is hard to acquire out there. And I know this because my partner and I have realized, like, we'll talk about something really weird. Like we need um, to buy some memory foam steps for the dog to get on the couch. And all of a sudden, both of our phones are flooded with ads for, for dog steps. 
And we're like, yeah. you know, you know, the damn phone is listening and and computing everything you say. So and again, was it was it Montana where they're trying to ban TikTok? Is is yes, it, there there was talk of that. Yep. Yeah. And is how do you feel? I mean, is am I giving the Chinese government a direct pipeline into my life? Is it dangerous? Should I avoid it? But I'm on so many other social medias. What's it doesn't seem to make sense to just single out one. That is extremely that's an extremely common fear as far as wondering where is my data going? Who is seeing this? I will say the approach that I've taken as someone who sees social media and technology not as just a way to like mine information, but a way to share information, to connect with the community. If there is a con that we haven't fully discovered yet, as far as the protection of our information, I don't know if it outweighs the pros of using social media. I mean, we are able to connect with people in ways that we've never been able to. We're able to communicate messages directly to consumers or voters or people in your districts or community members. Just the the ways that it provides for the world, I believe, are um, more valuable right now than potential risks. But again, I'm I'm not the software engineer who's coming up with the protection that we need, or I'm not, I don't have the most keen insights on um, where exactly our information is going. But as a regular TikTok, Instagram, Facebook user, um, I, I get sleep at night. I'm not mm-hmm. too concerned about it right now. You live in a very, what I think is a very interesting state. How would you describe it? Do you think Iowa is red, or can we officially maybe call it purple? Oh, Iowa is always purple, even if it's having some red moments. I mean, historically, we have been both blue, both red. Um, Purple state is the way Iowa will always stay imprinted in my mind. I believe we were the ones who decided Barack Obama first was going to be a great presidential candidate back in 2008. We are not afraid of voting Democrat. We are not afraid of voting Republican. I know things right now are pretty polarized, so it seems a bit like things are falling more red. But I I live in Iowa. I see these people every day. I see the youth vote that's going to be approaching um, the ballot box in 2024, and I'm very hopeful that we have some very progressive minds that are sick of um, what we've experienced, especially the past couple of years in our legislature. The last few times that I've read about Iowa, um, it's had to do with book banning. Um, I know that mm-hmm. there was, what was it, Urbandale, Iowa schools um, had identified 400-some books that they wanted taken out, books like I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings by Maya Angelou, um, right. The Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger. And there was a particular from social media. I never played it on the radio, but I pulled off. There was a clip of Alan Cumming, the actor and singer, and he and his husband had written a book, The Adventures of Honey and Leon. And theirs was one of the books um, identified, not because of any content in the book, but because two married men had written it. How, are, how do things stand right now with book banning in Iowa? Well, unfortunately, stories of school boards or legislators who lean a bit conservative um, wanting to ban books is commonplace these days. I feel like there's a huge spike in 
this anti-woke um, move, whatever woke really means to people. Mm-hmm. Um, but this move to eliminate stories about people who are deemed controversial by people um, usually on the far right. So those are the stories of transgender people or gay people or people of color um, attempting to share their stories. There unfortunately is a big move to erase those and to eliminate books that share their stories in schools. I think Iowa sent a really tremendous message, not only to political donors, special interest groups, politicians who try to take things too far, um, Moms for Liberty, for instance, um, Mm -hmm. when they tried to get involved in our school board elections this past month, um, Iowa sent a very strong message that we don't accept extremism in school board elections. There was a huge push um, on our end for the Iowa starting line to make sure that people knew who these people were, who these um, very well-funded candidates were that were attempting to get into schools and ban books or ban discussions on racial identity or sexual orientation, things along those lines. You know, the usual song and dance that we get where schools are just so corrupt and we're forcing this insane agenda down um, students' mm-hmm. throats. Um, making sure that the record was corrected and making sure that people knew that they had options for school board candidates who were very kind, empathetic, and intelligent people who had the community in mind when they were running and not the voices of special interests or donors. How are Moms for Liberty doing in Iowa? Because I know that on the November 7th, the last election across the country, uh, they didn't do too well in most of the places where they were behind uh, running candidates or behind specific candidates. And that's exactly what took place um, on November 7th in the state of Iowa. Um, people rejected them. They are kind of walking with their tail between their legs as far as Moms for, Moms for Liberty right now. They had this big excitement of getting into the school boards, and Iowans rejected them. We, No matter how much money was behind them, I won't say that this will play out the same every election, but for the most part, this past election, Iowans got wise. We stayed informed through organizations like the Iowa Starting Line or the Courier, um, and we're able to make informed decisions about how we wanted our school boards to be run. Someone, uh, I can't remember who, someone who I was reading said that we were very lucky in that Moms for Liberty were so, so far right, so crazy, so out of bounds that they that maybe people who otherwise might have listened to some of their messages rejected them out of hand. And they were basically saying, kids, you got lucky this time, but next time somebody might be a little smarter or they might want to appear a little more normal. And that's exactly what you were reporting on with that one Supreme mm-hmm. Court. Can- or no, it was in uh, this was I'm going to talk to um, one of your um, one of your fellow correspondents from Pennsylvania about um, a Supreme Court nominee who tried to pretend, tried to erase all the anti-abortion stuff, all of her website. And it's people like the Courier newsrooms who dig into this and say, wait a minute, this person isn't who they're pretending to be, because look at this, this and this. So along those lines, what are you working on now that you can give us uh, some insight about well, you know, the wolf in sheep's clothing is also always a threat. It's always looming. Someone who could be a bad character cosplaying as a good guy. Mm-hmm. Um, thankfully, to come full circle, the Internet is plentiful with information and records, and we're able to track down people's voting records, their 
previous stances on things, kind of track down beyond what's at service level on someone's website or Instagram page to see what they're really about. Um, we are living in the information age, for better or worse. We are kind of flooded with information. But thankfully, again, there are organizations like The Courier who are going to comb through that information, make sure that what's being presented is as factual as possible to the viewer. And you guys are expanding as well. Every time I, I hear anything about uh, Tara, your leader, it's like, oh, we're <laughs> opening up two more. We're in two more states than we used to be. Um, but one yeah. of the things that, that Courier is doing brilliantly is, you know, Illinois, which is uh, pretty blue and pretty democratic, might be pretty far down the list of states that need our own Courier newsroom. But yeah. other states like <laughs> Iowa and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, there are um, there's important information that you need to get out there. So the voters the voters will know what's happening in those highly contested states. And I think you're doing a great job, Liz, just an amazing job. Oh, thank you. You know, I think it really speaks to what democracy needs right now. People are hungry and thirsty for really local content, showing what exactly is going on at that big fancy capital on the Hill, um, whether in our states or at a national level. So, I am very proud to work with an organization that provides information that I would want to know as an average citizen mm-hmm. and not just as a political, I don't even know what to call me, someone who <laughs> for some reason really likes political news and likes to retell it. Um, so I'm proud to work for an organization that keeps people like me um, informed and engaged and in power of what we're going to have happen in this state. Well, Liz, I'm, uh, I feel very sorry that I did not leave enough time at the end of this interview for you and me to call your grandmother. But would you please, <laughs> when we hang up, would you, would you call your grandmother and tell her how proud I am of you? Oh, I will let her know. I know I think my parents and sisters might be listening. I'm not sure if my grandma is, but I will be sure to relay the message. Okay, that sounds great. Liz Fleming is the national social media correspondent for Courier and the Iowa starting line. And we are going to take a break for news and be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Uh, During my discussion a few minutes ago with Liz Fleming, I talked about the fact that there is a Courier newsroom based in Wisconsin. It is called Up North News. Pat Kreitlow, who uh, contributes to that, has been on our show several times. And Wisconsin is a really interesting state. We keep an eye on it, not just because it is our neighbor to the north, but also because politically and um, issue-wise, Wisconsin really reflects things that are going on across the country. One of the things we've talked about is the fact that Wisconsin is an extremely gerrymandered state. That was uh, part of the reason why Republicans were very worried when Janet Protasiewicz was elected to the Supreme Court, because there is a case that has to do with how uh, voting districts are mapped that is um, probably going to end up before those jurists. And, you know, you think about gerrymandering as Republican or Democrat, but gerrymandering also can mean that various ethnicities can also be cut out 
of any kind of power sharing. We saw the case in Alabama where the U.S. Supreme Court said that um, they needed to redraw their maps because they have such a large African-American population, and that was not reflected in the congressional maps. Well, in Wisconsin, there is a, a very large Native population, and that is one of the groups that feels that they are really being shortchanged and wants to do something about it. We're joined now by Ann Egan Wakaw, who's the Urban Native Vote Organizer for Wisconsin Conservation Voices and is also a member of the Menominee Indian Tribe. Ann, thank you for being here. You're very welcome. Is this Joan I'm speaking to? This is. This is Joan Hi. Esposito. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I had Hi. a very nice um, holiday weekend, though uh, that Thanksgiving holiday is a little bit more fraught if you're a member of a, of a Native population. Um, talk to me, uh, if before we get to the political maps, talk to me a little bit about this holiday we have just all come together for and um, what what the people of the Menominee Indian tribe, how they feel about it. Well, you know, our people still have their dinners and celebrate the day, but it's also turned into a dance service. Um, for example, I was at the Gerald L. Ignace Indian Health Center on the Tuesday before Thanksgiving, and we provided 425 meals to needy families and uh, members of our community. So we were there making sure that they had their food, and some said that was going to be their only food for the week. So it's a time wow. to be of service. And, you know, it's just when you think about the history, what what, what actually happened to us? I mean, our, our burial sites were pillaged, uh, they took away um, the seeds, et cetera. And it just is not a good fit for us now that we're learning more about our culture. And also, we're no longer afraid to speak about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in fact, um, I in my lifetime... I would say that now is when people are really listening to Native voices in a way that I haven't seen for a very long time, if ever. That's right. Thank you for saying that, because we're sensing with my fellow organizers and myself in um, Wisconsin that um, there's a more pride and a sense of ownership and a sense of responsibility now being felt in the community that, that we really haven't seen before. And we're out talking to our community members. We've worked with seven of the 11 tribes in Wisconsin. And mine is, as you know, Menominee Reservation. Um, I worked there, and um, we were able to actually increase voter turnout in the spring election by 75% compared to 2019. And then in um, way up north in um, Bayfield County, you have the Red Cliff then to the Lake Superior Chippewa, and they increased their voter turnout by 130%. So it's wow. working. Yeah, we're working hard and loving every second of it. I, I was praying to the creator that I would end my life still doing something for my people, and I am. And I had a father named Hillary Sparkywaka. He mentored me, and I hope I can live up to his um, name in, in mentoring me. He taught me a lot about uh, the importance of um, environmental activism 
importance of voting, working together with people. And so we're a, a 501c3, so we're nonpartisan. And sometimes I think that makes it easier. We just want our people to get to the polls. We don't tell yeah. them who to vote for. Just get to the polls and vote. And I've had, if I'm talking too much, let me know. No. <laughs> I get excited. No, you're not talking too much. You're talking just the right amount. Um, I made right. reference to the case that's um, going to be decided by the Wisconsin Supreme Court. I think right before Thanksgiving, uh, the week before Thanksgiving, they heard oral arguments. Talk to me as a native person about how the legislative maps as they exist now, how you feel that they've sort of diluted the political power you're um, native communities might otherwise have? Absolutely. That's a good question. My people have been on this line for thousands, tens of thousands of years, yet we continue to fight for fair and equal access to the ballot. And our indigenous voices matter at the poll and uh, key to affirm, are key to affirming that we deliver fair maps in Wisconsin so that we have accurate representation. Um, there's one area, for example, um, up in Bayfield County, Redcliffe, Split in half, so the vote's diluted, mm-hmm. and that's happened throughout the state. I'm blessed. My my reservation, the Menominee um, reservation, is a county as well, one of the few. So when you get there, you can see we always vote um, the right. Well, we vote the state that way, and um, we need to have our people know that they should vote and that. We have people who are working on making sure there is representation. You know, the oral arguments for FAMS are, are, are a step in the right direction for Native communities. What do you think the um, odds are that the Supreme Court of Wisconsin will be amenable to your arguments? I'm going to say that we're going to get it. We're going to get it. We're eagerly awaiting the decision, but I don't think I want to bet on that one either. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, the oral arguments are a critical step in getting closer to the opportunity to throw out the current maps, which really do not serve Wisconsin voters in Native communities. Yeah. Um, Will Native Americans in Wisconsin, if the current map is thrown out, will you and your people be part of the process to draw the new lines or how will that work? That I can't answer that. I I don't know that part yet, but I know that we would want to be involved. We have a group that represents all 11 tribes and it's called the Great Lakes Intertribal Council. And the chair is Shannon Housley, who is the president of the Stockbridge one Sea community. And I know that um, the group is very much aware of what's going on, very active. We, they get a lot of respect from, from the uh, politicians, I believe. And I just feel that, that we more than likely would have a voice at that point. How many different tribes are represented at the Great Lakes Intertribal Council? Um, all 11. Wow. All federally recognized um, tribes. And um, also um, the Brotherton, which had not been federally recognized yet. But with, with the Great Lakes Intertribal Council, they deal with a lot of issues like our elderly. We have a horrific um, fentanyl problem on our reservations and high suicide rate on my reservation and alcohol problems. So we're working to address that. The, the, the Great Lakes Intertribal Council and the tribes themselves individually and they're going to be um, building a in-house 
facility where patients can be treated inpatient and they get first preference, our kids would, but also if there are empty beds, they'll go to whomever needs it. So we're more than just talking about it. I'm, I'm very honored about my, my tribal, our tribal leaders in Wisconsin because they are very, very active and they're a strong group and they're very united, which is what we need mm-hmm. to help our people. Now, in addition to the Menominee, isn't, there's a significant Ho-Chunk population in Wisconsin. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely. In fact, I worked with the Ho-Chunk um, on that spring election and just enjoyed it. We, what we do is we go to where our people are. So um, I traveled to Ho-Chunk, and we had volunteers come up and uh, work with us. We had elders come in, but also we made sure that we had the tribal legislature on board, So we will not go anywhere unless we talk to the tribal chair first. And then from there, it's a great way to unify and and pull together the resources we need to get our people to the polls. So we have what's called a pledge to vote card. And this card basically has the click off what what is of interest to them. And then they put their name, their email, address, etc. And we will mail them back to remind them to vote. So at um, Menominee, we did about 5,000 of those cards. And in um, Ho-Chunk, about 4,800. I think I might be off a little bit. But we really worked hard with our tribe. And, again, going to powwows, I don't know if you know what a powwow is. Well, explain it to me. Well, a powwow is where our people gather and um, we sing, we have drums. They sing traditional music, songs, drumming. And the dancers come out and the dancers can be... Um, several categories. They have the traditional, they have the um, traditional men's and women's, um, fancy men and women, and then we have the jingle dress, which is a healing dress. So, and then we have little tots, which is just adorable, but we welcome anyone to come to our powwows because they're so beautiful. It's just beautiful. And to see all our lovely, lovely young ladies and men, handsome men in, in their regalia is just stunning. And it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work to prepare for those dances and you have to know the songs. And um, it's just a beautiful sight. And I recommend you come to the Menominee Powell, which is the first weekend in August. It is stunning. And you'd be amazed. It's in a bowl. But it's also a time where we have family members come in from other states. Um, and it's great to, to reunite with our family. Um, in Milwaukee, we had the Hunting Moon Powell by the Potawatomi tribe and they it was a wonderful event and there were people from tribes across the country there and this is going to sound really um very ignorant on my part but i am very ignorant on this issue so if you want next august to go to this powwow do you um like have to register online are there are there tickets uh, how does how does it how, how does it work <laughs> Well, some of the tribes are, that, that are more financially stable than others, like Ho-Chunk, they're free. Forest County, Potawatomi, theirs is free. Um, the Hunting Moon was free. My, char- my tribe, we do charge, I guess, like $15 for a button for the weekend, maybe 20 And um, just come. We love to have people come in. We have a lot of visitors come in who just want to enjoy our culture and see our people and it's so fun and then we table at those events as well so i'm there with uh with my 
table and my cards and goodies for the kids and coloring and make it family oriented. And also when I go to my power, I have so much fun because I get to see all my family, friends I haven't seen in years and decades even. So I get to a lot of fun. It sounds, it sounds wonderful. It, and it's, um, it's so close by that it would be a shame if we couldn't get some uh, interested folks to go up there and, and just see it firsthand and, and learn about this, uh, about the culture and the celebration of culture. And we need to take a real quick break. I'm talking to Ann Egan Wakaw, sure. the urban native vote organizer, organizer for Wisconsin Conservation Voices. She's also a member of the Menominee tribe. We'll be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Anne Egan Wakaw is here. She's a member of the Menominee Indian Tribe, and she's one of the people that's fighting for fairer legislative maps in Wisconsin. And that's a sticking point, Anne, because a lot of people say, oh, well, you know, Democrats are in charge now, so they'll just cheat in their favor. But what you're after is is a fair map, isn't it? That's all it is, is a fair map. We just want to have fair treatment. And, and if I could, could I share a story with you? Sure, that please do. I'm so passionate about this. I moved to a suburb of Milwaukee, and when I went to register to vote, the woman was asking me questions, and then at one point, she said, where were you born? I said, Menominee Reservation. And she said, you were born on a reservation? I said, yes, ma'am. And I said, yes, I was born on the reservation, and I, and I vote. You're Indian. Indians aren't supposed to vote. She told that to me, and I, I was flabbergasted, and it's etched in my memory. I will never forget that moment. That's and unbelievable. I, said, I, I, and I said, I voted before, and I'm going to continue voting. She said, but you're Indian, and you can't vote. <laughs> Well, she went, I know people behind me were gasping, and then she uh, went up to the poll worker, the head of the poll, and she came back and she said, ma'am, I wasn't being racist, I was just following policy. Now, I'm going to give her a little credit and say that maybe she didn't, she she remembered when we didn't have the vote, because she was quite old. But I do know people would have walked out on that at, at that point, and we want to tell our people, don't. Give up your right to vote. Yes, your voice does matter. We need your vote. And never let anyone turn you away from a poll. So when I went back this year in the spring and I told one of the the workers there the story, she goes, come back, I have another story for you. So I went and voted and then I came back and I said, what's going on? She said, you know, a kid just came up and he said, um, because it was at a high school, he said, I just turned 18. How much does it cost for me to vote? Oh, yeah. So that tells me we're going to have to get in our schools and do some work with our, our all kids, but with our native kids as well. And so I'm working with a group um, in Milwaukee. We're going to be registering our 18 year olds to vote if everything works out. OK, the excellent group. Um, it's called Black and Latino Male Achievement. And they a lot of our native people are of the black and Latino heritage. So we need to work together and. I'm excited about this new project. Just always need to look outside of the box to see how can we get our people to vote. Mm-hmm. And I often talk about having um, conversations with people at the table, well, at the power, wherever we are. And one guy came up to me and he said, I'm not going to vote. My vote doesn't matter. Oh. I said, yes, We talked for 20 minutes and he signed a pledge card. He goes, okay, I'll see you at the polls. So, oh. you know. 
we need to take that time. And who knows how many other people he, he would bring to the polls with him, but he was also one of the, the singers and uh, drummers at the Apollo as well. So you need, we have work to do. We're making progress. And it is absolutely amazing that we, the sense of ownership now, it, you see it growing. And it, it's very, it tears at your heartstrings. Because we have, we're looking at a population of folks who have a historic sense of indifference and reject the process of voting in the United States. So it's really important for us to recognize the contemporary bar- barriers to voting and to do something about it. We also work with the Native American Rights Fund as well. They came in because we had an issue where um, people were told they weren't registered and they knew they were, and they were given the wrong polling location, et cetera. So we, we keep track of everything, and when... We need them. They're here. They're, they, what, they're what is that group called again? Group. It's called the Native American Rights Fund. It's a group of attorneys that work for the rights of our people. It's based in Washington, huh. D.C. I'm not familiar yeah, with so, that group. I'll have to send you some information. Yes, absolutely. I would like to get them on the, on the show and, and talk about oh. the work they're doing. But, you know, the kind of thing that you're talking about, um, poll workers particularly saying to somebody, oh, you know, you're not registered, well, you can't vote, you don't have this, you don't have that. That's, that's the kind of thing. Sometimes it is an honest mistake and sometimes it's not. Exactly. And, and it's also about location, too. Like if you have a polling place close to a police department, I know there are people that wouldn't go because they were afraid they'd get arrested if they, you know, Mm-hmm. The cops on there. <laughs> yeah. So we have to work on educating our people. And like I said, I've only been with Wisconsin Native Vote for two years, and I love it. It's the most amazing organization I've ever worked at. And and I should say with. The team is awesome. We work with our sister, sister group is Wisconsin Conservation Voices. And then the brother group is Wisconsin Conservation Voters. So we have a lot of great colleagues who are always willing to help run ideas by us. But we've had a wonderful, a wonderful manager in D. Sweet who's from the um, Red Cliff tribe. And she is an amazing woman, and I've learned so much from her as well. What and have you seen in the two years you've been a part of this? What's one change either in policy or in attitude or in what people are saying? What's one thing that has changed in that two years? I think that people, I, I've seen excitement growing on my reservation. I have relatives who are so excited that on election day, they'll send me a photo so we can put it on our website. I um, have, she has a daughter going to um, Madison. My cousin's name is Sharon Waka. And she has a daughter going to Madison, Kira. And, and she um, voted, so she put her sticker on her forehead and sent it to her mom and her mom. <laughs> Me. And then we were, I was cabling with my colleague, um, Anjali Bashan, and, and we were cabling at an event, Native American event, and this girl came up, and she, I said, do you want to register? Are you regist- want to register to vote? She said, yes, I was waiting for some, a Native American organization. I didn't want to just rather register with anybody, and this is exactly what I was looking for. So they know who we are. Word spread slowly but surely, and again, I, I just, I just feel even... I love to eat and breathe it because it's so important. You said you You were born on the reservation. How large is the reservation? Did you mean as in how many miles? Yeah, both people and size. Well, our tribe is 8,000 members about. 
and the reservation is quite large. We're actually known for our um, sustainable forest. People come from all over the world to even see our, our sawmill. And I'm going to the reservation. I'm sorry if I'm stumbling. Is 357.96 square miles. So 235. Wow. It's big. Beautiful, beautiful. In fact, my father told me that astronauts would look down on Earth and see the reservation because it looks like an L, and that's the shape they knew where they were. They used oh. it as a um, as a place, as a marking place. But it's the most beautiful reservation. We have the Wolf River, which my father fought along with other people to have it de- declared a pristine river so nothing can um, pollute it, nothing can be in. And then... Um, also, he helped to fight a nuclear waste dump site that was proposed for underneath our reservation because we're on a, a granite bedrock. But that didn't go through. So we're going to always have to keep fighting, I think, and protect Mother Earth. I mean, she, Mother Earth is, is who we are, our existence. We, we get fresh water. We have our, our, our medicines and our wild rice and things that, that are so important to our, our people, my people, and to me. And we have to make sure we protect her. And yeah. by doing that, the best way is to vote. Vote for people that will um, help us protect Mother Earth. Because I talked to an elder on my reservation, and I love talking to the elders. They're so cool. And she said, you know, Mother Earth is sick. She's throwing up. And that's about right. And then a younger girl from Marquette told me, Marquette University, she said, Mother Earth is sick. She has a fever. But two analogies from two age groups that are very spot on. Yeah, very much. And it is delightful to talk to you. And uh, we're going to need to do it again. Um, Hopefully once this wonderful Supreme Court in Wisconsin makes a decision that we can all be excited about, we will get you back on the line and talk about this again. Thank you. Thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor honor and a privilege. And have a great rest of your week. You too. And Egan Walkaw is an um, urban native vote organizer in Wisconsin. We're going to take a break and we're going to be back with more politics right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We, um... A while back, we're talking to Liz Fleming, who works for the Courier Newsrooms and particularly reports on all things Iowa. When I was talking with her, I was uh, I made reference to a Supreme Court candidate from Pennsylvania who uh, tried very hard to uh, hide from people that she was very, very anti-abortion. And it was the Courier Newsrooms who helped bring the reality of her candidacy to light. So let's just... Let's just go directly to Pennsylvania. Sean Kitchen is the Courier Newsroom reporter there. Sean, how are you? I'm doing great, Joan. How are you? I'm uh, I'm peachy. I'm well rested after my Thanksgiving holiday. Um, the scale has gone up a little bit, but you know what? It's Thanksgiving, and if you can't go crazy over Thanksgiving, when can you, Sean? I know that's exactly what the holidays are for. I I 100% agree with you. (laughs) I want to talk to you about your story about Ms. Carluccio. Is that how you say her name? Yes. 
Tell me about uh, yeah, that today. and how you so, uh, how you dug into that. Yeah. So um, back in May, I originally reported on um, Carolyn Coluccio, who was running for uh, the Supreme Court here in Pennsylvania, um, deleting an anti-abortion resume from her campaign website. Um, the story at the time uh, went viral. This was back in May. Uh, we were we were tipped off about her having this um, about having this uh, resume on her website. It was gone, um, and you know we dug through the Internet Archives. Uh, you know everything on the Internet is pretty much there forever. Yeah, and we found I was able to find her um, original website with uh, this resume on it that said she would protect all life under law and also be a protector of the second amendment. Hmm. So she was going to like, these were basically dog whistles uh, for being, you know, advancing these anti-abortion views. And then also being a, like supporting um, or not supporting gun safety measures and doing everything she could to uh, support gun owners here in Pennsylvania. And she did this to get through the primary here in Pennsylvania because, um, you know, the Republican electorate here in the state is very conservative, you know, pretty much has gone off the rails over the past uh, few election cycles. And if you're, you know, a supposed moderate Republican who is in the position that Coluccio was, she, you know, she placated towards uh, this base uh, that wanted to ban abortion in Pennsylvania. And she got caught when she tried to remove it from her website. Don't people understand that the cover-up is worse than the crime? Yeah, um, especially when she sought the endorsements for an organization, such as uh, the Pro-Life Federation here in Pennsylvania, organizations that want to ban abortion Mm -hmm. and include no exceptions for uh, rape, incest, or protecting mother's uh, livelihood. Um, You know, she tried covering it up uh, in the last week of the election, telling people not to believe the... uh, the attacks against her. She had her I'm not a witch moment uh, a few weeks before the election. We're talking about, I guess it was Christine O'Donnell back in 2010. She pretty much released that same type of ad telling people, you know, I am who I am and don't believe the attacks against me. So she didn't even just erase it. She tried to deny it. Yes, especially towards the final weeks of the election here in Pennsylvania. Now that's, I'm sorry, Sean, that that's another level of crime, in in my opinion, Um, rather than, you know, just trying to hide something that you think is going to turn people off, but actually then then lying about it. So what was the reaction after you wrote about this, after you Um, investigated and published this? So it kind of, you know, went viral at first back in May. Um, And then it wasn't until, um, I would say like over the spring, or over the summer months, uh, that story got picked up nationally by Politico, the Associated Press, and other uh, media organizations, either from, like, organizations going from the mainstream media outlets to statewide, local, and regional outlets. She had to answer these questions about her abortion record, her anti-abortion record, every time she went into a um, in, into an endorsement meeting with, with, uh, with local newspapers here in Pennsylvania. And each time she was coming up with these different lies, telling them that uh, a campaign consultant updated the website, but didn't remove it, that they updated it. So uh, it was it was tomato, tomato, you know, semantics uh, going on with that. 
I also want to talk to you, uh, Sean, about a very deep-pocketed donor in Pennsylvania. You may not know, but up until fairly recently, Ken Griffin, the big Republican donor, was in the state of Illinois. But uh, Governor Pritzker hurt his tiny little feelings, and he moved down to Florida, where he is a much better fit, um, though he did initially fund DeSantis, so that was kind of water. Uh, under the bridge. And now he's um, hinting that he might put some of his money behind Nikki Haley, but he hasn't uh, quite written the check just yet. You have your own billionaire. Uh, how do you say his name? Jeffrey Yas? Yas. Like, um, have you ever seen like the Yas Queen memes that are popular online? It's just like that. Jeffrey Yas. So um, tell me about Jeffrey Yas. So Yas is a um, billionaire who recently really struck it rich on uh, becoming like super rich. He's worth twenty eight and a half billion dollars um, thanks to his investments in TikTok, um, the online social media platform. His wealth or his um, his share of TikTok investments through his uh, through his banking firm or his you know his his uh, his bank or his investment firm is on par with the amount of stock that Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg owns in Facebook. So this guy um, was originally worth one or $2 billion over the past year who, or the past decade got really involved with uh, the charter school movement here in Pennsylvania. He's very pro voucher, very pro charter school, anti-union, anti-teachers union. And he spent the past, I'm going to say five years, um, becoming a mega donor here in Pennsylvania, but also nationally. Um, he has spent close to $40 million here in Pennsylvania on races from school boards all the way up through statewide races to the Supreme Court. Um, he gave, he spent $5 million, uh, with his money, spent his money support, $5 million of his own money, uh, went to go support Carluccio and the other Republicans who are running for um, statewide court races on the, the lesser courts. And um, very good news. They, they lost all four of those races. And the school board races that he invested in and other races here in Pennsylvania, um, he absolutely got routed. Pretty much lost every single race he invested here in Pennsylvania and also lost every race he invested in Virginia and Kentucky. Well, that's good news. <laughs> yeah. and it's good news not only because the anti-democracy candidates that he was behind didn't win, but it's also good news to me because there have been times in the past here in Illinois when it felt like whoever could spend the most was the winner. You know, that there were so many low-information voters that if you – in the last weeks of the campaign, if you were able to flood the airwaves with attack ads, that you had a better shot of winning. And I'm glad to see that, you know, we've reported on time and time again of really deep pocketed donors who donate to candidates and causes that turn out to be losers because they're really unpopular candidates and causes. But people aren't being swayed by the by the big money buys do you, Sean do you think it's it's fair 
to maybe extrapolate from that, that that maybe the low information voter is getting a little more information like from courier newsrooms than they otherwise would be. Why do you think all of Yas's investments were such losers? Um, I think it's that. It, we also have a very well-organized progressive infrastructure here in Pennsylvania. Um, I would say since 2018 or 2016, when Trump won Pennsylvania, a lot of organizers here in the state took that personally and wanted to make sure something like that never happened again. And the work we're doing here with Carrier is great. And it's a key part of that infrastructure because you have the people organizing, but you also need the media side of that to get the stories and get the information out. Yeah, I think that um, I think that Courier has a has a great model for reaching people who are might be otherwise not terribly reachable by traditional um, party politics and party efforts. Sean, we need to take a break. I'm talking to Sean Kitchen. He is with the Keystone, that is the Courier Newsroom news organization in Pennsylvania. We'll be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Hi, I'm joined by Sean Kitchen, who uh, is with the Keystone, the Courier News publication in Pennsylvania. And um, what are you working on now, Sean? Um. Right now, we are just going through all of the uh, post-election victories here in Pennsylvania. Walk um, us through some just, of those, because, uh, you know, we're yeah. in Illinois. Maybe we weren't paying attention like we should have been. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't know how things went in Illinois, but I would, judging from election night, you know, I think it would be pretty similar here in Pennsylvania. Um, we had a ton of important school board races um, that went um that not just like democrats flipped but they swept all these seats like i mean they we had uh moms for liberty here in philadelphia over the summer and um no the people in philadelphia and the surrounding region got to uh protest them and then kick them out you know in the summer and the fall um you know for instance we had some school boards in the philadelphia suburbs one is central Park school district and another one is uh, Penridge. They're both next to each other. Mm-hmm. And they really went down into that rabbit hole uh, during COVID. Um, they were able to, you know, um, seize the fervor of the masking mandates and turn that into them taking over the school boards. They got pushed out pretty quickly. Um, voters weren't parents, not just voters, but like parents, students, teachers, people living in those districts. They were not happy with the culture wars and the overreach that happened with their child's education, with their children's education. Um, you know, like these people were more interested in pushing bathroom bans, uh, book bans, going after trans athletes, trans mm-hmm. students, than like actually carrying out the normal functions of the school district. Um, we saw a lot of victories there. Um, we saw a lot of really important uh, municipal victories. Um, and countywide ones. I would. I think what we saw here in Pennsylvania was the anti-abortion, the um, becoming a main issue, uh, and the education issues driving people out to vote. And Democrats really had successes 
really far down the ballot. Um, I live in a county in central PA um, that went blue for the first time since World War I uh, with our county commissioners. So over 100 years, um, a place in that's like a deep red part of Pennsylvania flipped, and it flipped unexpectedly. Like no one had the county I was living in flipping. A bunch of other counties flipped. Um, there was a tweet out there by, I think, Stephen Wolf from uh, Daily Coast following the election. Every state that Biden won in 2020, Democrats picked up in 2023. So, you know, you have your blue counties, but they picked up a bunch of red counties that Biden won in 20 here in 23. And that's really going to have an impact on next year's election. Um, in Pennsylvania, our county commissioners control how elections are ran. And if you're living in a Democratic county, most likely you'll be able to uh, cure any issues with your mail-in ballots. But if you live in a Republican county and you misdate a ballot or, well, not misdate, but say if you missign a ballot or you make a very procedural mistake on your mail-in ballot, Mm -hmm. they will toss those ballots to the side. Um, That's not going to be the case anymore in a lot of these counties that just went Democratic. That's great news. Um, I also saw, and I can't remember, sorry, if this was your byline or somebody else, that in the recent, uh, in the recent election, there was a great youth turnout. And man, that is wonderful to see. Would you talk about that? Yes, I actually just published this uh, earlier this afternoon. Um, so between, uh, we had a Supreme Court race in 2021, and comparing this Supreme Court race to the 2021 Supreme Court race, uh, the youth voter turnout uh, increased more than doubled on key college campuses around Pennsylvania. Um, there was one school in particular, uh, Temple University in Philadelphia, that had a like 560% increase, where they only had 30 people voting in the 2021 election, the students. And then at this past election, they had close to 200. Students wow, um, that's amazing. Yeah, and like these numbers add up. It's, you think that's just one campus, but in a state where Trump won by 30,000, 40,000 votes in 2016, a few thousand votes can decide an election here in Pennsylvania. That's, uh, but that's just amazing. I strongly suspect that part of the increase in younger people voting has to do with Roe v. Wade. Do you think that I'm right? And or what other influences do you think? Because, you know, I've covered elections for a very long time. And one thing that's always frustrated me was uh, the low turnout. You know, it's like the younger the demographic is, the lower the turnout. And that seems to be changing. Why do you think that is? I think Roe v. Wade, I think overturning Roe um, has a lot to do with it. Um, you know, just you felt that last year um, once we flipped the House and Fetterman won his U.S. Senate seat. Um, the, and then I feel like that momentum carried over, especially when uh, Carluccio was caught removing her anti-abortion stuff from our website. And that became a key issue in the campaign. Um, and frankly, it became the only issue that the Democratic judge, Daniel McCaffrey, campaigned on pretty much the final couple months of the campaign. 
like the the abortion abortion rights, reproductive rights were the main theme for this campaign. And also, you know, if you have a lot of these younger kids who are more diverse, they have friends who are part of the LGBTQ community. They know they have friends who are trans, trans people. You know, these culture wars just aren't, um, you know, aren't really motivating younger people to vote for Republicans. Mm-hmm. No, they're absolutely not. And what I don't understand is if you can see that and I can see that, why is it that officials of the Republican Party don't be able don't seem to be able to see that because when they have the opportunity to back away from some of these hot button issues, they don't. In fact, they usually double down. So w- w- what's going on there, Sean? Uh, the Republicans right now, they're still doubling down on um, on the school board issues. Like their post uh, their postmortems, their election postmortems, um, they're blaming their school board losses on the abortion issue. Like that's what they said. They think they lost these school board races uh, not from their, you know, years of overreach and going after LGBT students or book bans, but that they lost because they had a weaker candidate top of the ticket. And yet, and yet, they continue on. Yeah, no, they are. <laughs> That's, yeah, no, they're doubling and tripling They down just the can't help themselves. Is it, is it because they are so tied to the most radical elements of their base that they simply can't adjust? They can't shift gears? I mean, even Nikki Haley has, has tried to make noises about, well, you know, there's probably room for discussion when it comes to abortion, you know? I mean, come on. I think it's that. And also there, um, you know, a lot of the issues we've seen over the past couple of years, especially on the school board races, aren't about these cultural war issues. I mean, they are. But the bigger issue is undermining public education. And that is one of their main planks. The ban- Those are the two main pl- platforms, pretty much. Attack public education, because that's what their billionaire donor wants in Jeffrey Yass. And also... You know, their religious, um, their religious base uh, here in Pennsylvania, uh, Christian, the Christian nationalist movement has a very strong uh, grip on the base of the Republican Party. And they're not going to give up on abortion because of that. They're going to be it's like this is going to continue to be an issue for them going forward. Wow. They can't get away from it, can they? No, they can't. You know, um, John Fetterman has been, um, well, to some of us, he's been a breath of fresh air, uh, but he has certainly in some degree irked his Senate colleagues. And um, even Joe Manchin said that Chuck Schumer should have reinstated the uh, dress code. (laughs) How do the people of Pennsylvania feel that Fetterman's doing? I feel like they love him. Um, you know, like going out uh, to a Fetterman rally, I saw Fetterman um, at a um, on a picket line a couple months ago. Back in October, we have a, we had a um, UAW strike here with uh, the Mack truck uh, factory lines here in uh, Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Florida. And a lot of people, working people, see Fetterman as one of their own. I mean, they don't. These are. I mean, I grew up in a household where my dad was a forklift driver, and never owned a suit. Like, 
and I feel like you could, there's a lot of that here in Pennsylvania. And I feel like people respect that. Someone who's more working class or shows off that working class credentials. And I think it's just a, it, it's, it's a respectability issue within the DC beltway, in my opinion. One of the also one of the things that I love about Fetterman is that uh, when it comes to social media, and again, I know he has people he works with, so who knows if he's actually the one typing these things out. But he's just, you know, I think one of the appeals of Donald Trump was Donald Trump said what a lot of people were thinking. Like Donald Trump, when he was accused of, of, of you know, shaving things off of his taxes. And he was like, of course, I try to pay as little tax as possible because I'm smart. And I think it was a lot. It was something that a lot of people could relate to. And on social media, Fetterman will take a situation and he will. How can we put this not mince words? You know, um, he, um, he regular, pretty regularly. I see F bombs and and just a, a very sort of, you know, he's clearly in the Senate, which is a very hoity toity place to be. But he does he, 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 he does have a blue collar sensibility in how not only how he dresses, but also how he relates to people. Yeah, I mean, I feel like he relates to people. Um, I mean, like Senator Bob Casey here in Pennsylvania is also really good at relating with people. He has a lot lower profile than Fetterman. Um, but I mean, like, I would compare Fetterman on par with, say, like a Tester or a Sherrod Brown, mm-hmm. who you have that. I mean, Tester's not from the rough stuff, but you have that, like, you have that working class ethos that they bring out and they always you know they might not take votes you they might they might take votes you may not agree with from time to time but when it comes to protecting unions or working people uh Fetterman's right up there with you know some of the bigger names in the senate mm-hmm. um once in a while i'll read an article about you know i mean he still has some audio processing uh issues are the people of pennsylvania do you think worried about his his medical limitations i mean this is a guy who um you know had a really bad stroke and has made just remarkable progress and a great recovery but not perfect do you think that bothers people um maybe but it shouldn't um i remember seeing fetterman after he came back from his stroke and the struggles that he had to where he is at now and the only, I mean, he's like 10,000 times better um, where he's been over since like a year and a half, two years ago. Um, he, the only issue is that he has, he has to use his cell phone to auto transcribe what people are mm-hmm. saying. But other than that, it, it, he's, he's back to the point where he's, he's back to himself. Mm-hmm. And I think you could see that um, with his personality um, the jokes, the shots he takes. Um, you know, I think that having Fetterman back to 100% is a really bad nightmare for Republicans because he doesn't really uh, care about letting loose with what he wants to say. Yeah. Well, Sean, having uh, reached um, 
a stage of development where sometimes I turn to my partner and say, should we turn the subtitles on or just turn it up really loud? I must say that I think John Fetterman is doing just fine. No, I, I listen. I, I, I watch movies with the subtitles. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, thank you. You have to make out what people are saying. Mm hmm. And, and in my defense, too. we watch a lot of Acorn TV. So sometimes there's there's shows from New Zealand and there's shows from Scotland. And, you know, sometimes they talk really fast. And with those accents, you need a little help. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sean, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. And I love uh, reading uh, on the Courier Newsroom, the Keystone site, what you're writing about. Thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me and looking forward to coming back at some time. Yeah, that would be terrific. Sean Kitchen from the Keystone. We're going to take a break for news and be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. We're joined by our good friend, political science professor, Joel Ostro, who is with Benedictine University. He is an expert on russia and um we always start our segments most of the time we start our segments by updating what is going on in ukraine joel first of all i hope you had a wonderful thanksgiving thank you you too joe and it was pretty good yeah. i stuffed my face oh god i'm still stuffing my <laughs> face i just i was just saying a little while ago i finished the last of the turkey this today for lunch um <laughs> It was yeah. it was very very good. Of course, I didn't cook it, Joel. I bought it, which is uh, uh, which is why Thanksgiving was the food was so good this year. It all came from a restaurant. That's fine. I cooked mine, so there. Did you really? <laughs> yeah, I cook Thanksgiving dinner every year. Yeah, some it. people some people are very very good at it. I I don't happen to be one of those people. <laughs> um, so rather than stress, well, you know, I. I did. There were a couple of dishes that I was in charge of. You know, I was in charge of putting the marshmallows on top of the (laughs) sweet potatoes, and I burned them, Joel. Nice. I burned them. I looked at them under the boiler, and they were just starting to get brown. I thought, ah, a couple more minutes, and then they were black. Oh. Uh, Anyway. About that, I don't do sweet potatoes. But anyway, yeah. But um, but anyway, is it my imagination, or do things? Well, certainly nobody's declaring victory. Do things look a little bit better for Ukraine these days? What's your thoughts? Well, my first thought is uh, how um, basically there's no reporting out of Ukraine anymore. All of the journalists have fled. Uh, And uh, we can get to this. At first, I thought that that was going to turn out to be a, a boon for Putin and for Russia. But my thinking has changed on that. Uh, might actually uh, backfire uh, if Russia was had anything to do with Hamas's attack on October 7th or if they were just celebrating uh, they might end up being unhappy about that uh, but there have been um, developments over the last couple of weeks in Ukraine despite the lack of reporting um, <clears throat> Ukraine has carried out a number of successful attacks on uh, power plants in Russian occupied Russia occupied Ukraine and Crimea um, which they are hoping will give Russia pause uh, before um, commencing with the anticipated wave of attacks on Ukrainian 
uh, electric and, and heat supplies uh, as winter approaches. As, as Russia did last year, you might remember, caused widespread and long blackouts and uh, cutting off of, of gas uh, 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 supplies uh, to keep apartments lit and warm in Ukraine's cold winter. Um, Russia still has the capacity to do that, of course, um, but Ukraine has a new capacity uh, uh, to cause uh, similar problems for Russia. Right now, uh, some 100,000 uh, people in Russian-occupied Ukraine uh, are without electricity, uh, much of that due to Ukraine's attacks. And then there were these, um, again, no reporting on it, but massive storms along the Black Sea and Azov Sea coasts, uh, hurricane force winds, um, just torrential historic levels of flooding. Wow, you're right. Had, I don't recall reading anything about this. Uh, people have died, uh, and Russia had um, dug trenches along the coastline to prevent amphibious attacks by Ukraine. Uh, and those are all flooded. Um, weapon systems have been taken out. There are reports of soldiers uh, having... Uh, been killed and drowned in the flooding, trying to rescue equipment and stuff. We don't really know how many, uh, because that is in deep Russia-occupied territory. Um, Ukraine has also been affected. Odessa has experienced uh, bad flooding. Uh, but the impact in terms of the war will be much more dramatically felt by Russia than by Ukraine, and combined with Ukraine's ability uh, to attack Russia's uh, power supplies uh, in Russian-occupied Ukraine. Uh, pretty devastating. Stuff. So, those and are the most important developments of it. What w- I read something about Russia talking to the Chinese about building a tunnel from C- Crimea to Russia. Did you see that? I did not. Yeah, and it was like, yeah, um, it was like they had like a preliminary talks, and the Chinese were all excited <clears throat> about the prospect, uh, but nothing. Uh, had happened to date, which, if you know, if you think that uh, you're not going to have a overground access to Crimea, I suppose a tunnel makes sense. And then what I took away from that is, does that mean that Vladimir Putin feels that this whole uh, military action is not going like he hoped it would go? Oh, well, there's no doubt that he's been frustrated from the first days of this of this invasion of the war. Uh, hard to imagine a tunnel of, of that length uh, being feasible, and even harder to imagine China being a part of it, um, given the, uh, as, as we've talked about several times, right, Joan, uh, uh, China's renewed and accelerated interest in reestablishing good relations with the United States and Europe. Um, as I've been saying all along, uh, China's interest is, is much more uh, with the West than with Russia. Um, China's suffering uh, just devastating economic troubles that it can only correct by reestablishing uh, positive trade relations with, uh, with its pre-COVID partners, the United States and, and, and Europe in particular. Uh, that has been the focus of their diplomatic effort um, and, and, and the meetings at the recent summit between President Biden and President Xi uh, certainly uh, testified to that, and, and, and by all accounts, they were good, except for the one, you know, his, the president's response to that one reporter's question about earlier comments about she being a dictator. But, you know, that's 
that's public propaganda stuff that that's not going to derail or really have any impact on on the uh, diplomatic progress that has happened, and, and I anticipate will continue. You uh, shared with me the link to that AP News article that uh, purported to report on secretly recorded phone conversations between Russian soldiers and, I'm assuming, their families. Tell the listeners about that, if you would. Yeah, so this uh, we, we haven't heard many uh, reports on this uh, for the last several months, but you might remember in the first year of the war, there were frequent uh, intercepts that were reported on, on Western media, on U.S. media, uh, conversations between soldiers at the front, uh, and their families or friends back home <coughs> intercepted by Ukrainian or U.S. intelligence services, um, critical of Russia's methods, uh, but mostly condemn, you know, critical of and, and just reporting back to their families about countering uh, Kremlin propaganda, reporting success in the war, and, and letting uh, people back home know that, that things are pretty awful. Not only were things going badly for Russia, but also the things that Russia's soldiers were being commanded, uh, crimes they were being commanded to commit against Ukrainian civilians, there was a lot of criticism of that. Um, and then we haven't heard much of it for a while. Um, but this report uh, was based on intercepts beginning in January of this year, so over the last 11 months, um, pretty comprehensive and wide-ranging reports of these kinds of uh, communications from from the war zone back home uh, by Russian forces all across, up and down, uh, Russian-occupied territory and contested territory, from Crimea in the south all the way uh, up as far as uh, the, the most northerly uh, portions of the area where the fighting is happening, up near uh, Kharkiv, uh, to the east of that. Um, pretty consistent stuff about um, basically how, how it's just carnage uh, and questioning the purpose of, of the battle, questioning uh, how poorly outfitted they are. Um, one report in particular lamenting that they are uh, fighting against uh, 2020s era technology using 1980s or 1970s technology themselves, um, just in every way imagine, imaginable, um, negative reports uh, from Russia's soldiers. But now also combined with imploring family members back home uh, to be more vocal <clears throat> about uh, calling for an end to this, uh, because these Russian soldiers have been uh, sent to essentially permanent duty, uh, and, and they're not being rotated out. It's not a one-year or two-year commitment. Uh, they're being sent there, and they're staying there uh, without without any prospect of, of returning back home. Uh, and that is not what they were promised, either whether uh, as professional military members prior or as more recent conscripts or even those contracted as mercenaries, uh, former prisoners. Um, you name it, no matter what category, uh, the biggest complaint is that they're being sent there and then uh, what was what was promised to be their term of service uh, has been reneged uh, by the Russian government, and, and they're stuck there. 
with no 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 end in sight for them individually. I want to talk to you more about that. The the Russian soldiers fighting in Ukraine. We need to take a break. I'm talking to sure. political science professor Joel Ostro from Benedictine University. We'll be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm speaking with Benedictine University uh, political science professor Joel Ostro. We were just talking about an AP News article that um, reported on recorded conversations where Russian soldiers were uh, talking to their loved ones at home and expressing a lot of uh, disgruntlement about the war. Joel said that one of the reasons is that rather than being rotated in and rotating out, that now it's uh, sort of a one-way ticket. Um, And I've also been reading, Joel, that there are rumors that there's going to be some sort of third round of some kind of conscription or some kind of draft, uh, and that for the first time, um, older men are going to be considered. Have you heard anything about that? What do you know about that? <clears throat> well, that wouldn't be the first time. The conscription last summer uh, was, uh, I think it was 300,000 were supposed to be conscripted. I think they succeeded in conscripting about 200,000. Of those, uh, something like 40% were over the age of 30. So we're talking people with careers, with families, children, uh, mortgages, um, and uh, uh, there was, I was shocked at how little outrage there was, but there was a lot of draft dodging last summer uh, when that conscription happened. Many people fled the country. Uh, many people got arrested trying to flee. Um, so <clears throat> it is not surprising, uh, given the course of the war and the, the catastrophic number of casualties and fatalities that Russian forces have experienced, that, that the Kremlin would 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 tried a, another conscription. It'll have to be, uh, again, include many who are over the age of 25, for sure. Uh, so older men, uh, for sure. Uh, and uh, what the result of that will be, only time will tell. But the Kremlin, for now, seems to be able to count on um, little or no opposition to anything it does. Um, uh, and it is surprising. So these reports, uh, one quote from this article They have night vision and automatic rifles with cool silencers, meaning the Ukrainians. I have an automatic rifle from 1986, or hell knows what year. This is a guy who was speaking to his brother. Um, And it's it's report after report similar to that, uh, many with with words that uh, we can't say on a family radio station. Um, But uh, uh, the discontent is widespread. there uh, was a report that I read a couple days ago suggesting uh, some kind of new version of the Committee of Soldiers' Mothers might be, might be bubbling up from the surface. Uh, the Committee of Soldiers' Mothers, Mothers was instrumental in um, countering the misinformation from the, from the Soviet government during the uh, Soviet Union's bungled invasion of Afghanistan. Uh, and their failures there in Afghanistan in the 1980s um, and is credited with uh, sort of sparking uh, public expressions of an organization against communism that then accelerated after Gorbachev came to power in in 1985-86 and and unveiled that policy of glasnost to try and create a safety valve uh, for the system by letting people air their grievances 
Um, and among the, the most uh, uh, ferocious of those grievances were, were from the mothers of those soldiers killed and wounded. Uh, the numbers killed and wounded, number of Russians killed and wounded in this war um, are astronomical compared to what, what happened in Afghanistan, on, on magnet, orders of magnitude greater, um, hundreds of times more Russians killed and wounded uh, than was the case in over 10 years in Afghanistan. That was the case, that was after just one year in Ukraine. So there are many more family members uh, who are missing loved ones or have maimed loved ones or uh, emotionally uh, traumatized loved ones who one would think would have grievances against the Putin regime. Uh, those have not materialized to this point, but, but perhaps um, as, as more and more of these messages come back from the front uh, and, and perhaps there is some ability for uh, families to overcome whatever fear they have and express discontent, maybe things on the ground could change. Hard to see it, but one could hope. I also read that there's a belief that Putin has left Moscow, that he's in one of his many vacation homes scattered about the countryside. But the way the article I read described it, it wasn't just that he was vacationing, but rather he wanted to make himself a little less available should someone, you know, want to assassinate him. Have you read anything about that? Yeah, these reports have sprung up uh, pretty regularly. Um, he does have a number, as, as the former Soviet leaders did, um, residences outside of Moscow, uh, well, for that matter, within Moscow as well, uh, available to him. It, it would not surprise me that uh, given... Uh, given his reasonable fears of opposition to this war, both internal, uh, uh, particularly among the military and external, uh, that, that he would uh, have his own safety as a, a paramount concern. Uh, and so keeping his whereabouts a little uh, unknown is probably uh, a rational thing to do uh, from his own internal calculations. But do you think that means he is in more danger than he was in before? Because, you know, this is, this is uh, something, something new. I mean, when this conflict first started, he wasn't hiding out in a vacation home. He was right there front and center. Yeah, but he wasn't always in the Kremlin, Joan. Uh, remember those, those reports of his, his armored train uh, that is camouflaged to appear like any other train? Those things take him to his various homes outside of Moscow, um, and and there are those reports that all of those homes are arranged and decorated and outfitted exactly the same way, uh, with bedrooms in the same locations and furnished identical to each other, offices uh, the same. Uh, we, this has been pretty uh, well reported over the years, even even before the war started. Hmm. Yeah, but but for, I would not be surprised that his frequency of movement is increased. But I don't know that that signifies uh, that he's in any greater danger now. To my line of thinking, his most vulnerable point was um, at, at the beginning of the war uh, in uh, February of 2022, maybe March or April, when things really started going south, um, and and. I, 
and, and he made changes to his upper level uh, military advisors and commanders uh, that suggested that he, he thought the same uh, was possible. So, uh, but I don't know at this point that, uh, that assassination is, is a real threat. Uh, now, whether Ukraine or Ukrainian intelligence could pinpoint a location for him and whether they would have the ability to do anything about it, uh, number one, and then number two, would they think that it was to their advantage to do so because it's not at all clear that Ukraine is better off if they carry out some kind of assassination of Putin. Uh, yeah, who knows? What do you mean it's not apparent that Ukraine would be better off if somebody assassinated Putin? Wouldn't that bring the war to a close? No. Uh, it, it could bring someone uh, more willing to use more brutal tactics against Ukraine, hard, as that, hard though that is to imagine. Um, there, there's no guarantee that Putin's successor is going to be someone who is uh, more reasonable, let's put it that way, from, from our perspective. Mm. There's no guarantee at all. But don't autocrats like him usually surround themselves with weaker sort of yes-men? I mean, wasn't that the problem with how he got such bad advice on the invasion yeah. because people were telling him what he wanted to hear? So even sure. if there is a power vacuum, I mean, do you really think someone who is as as much of a strong man as him would step into the breach? Or don't you think those people have been gotten rid of? Uh, less able strong men are more prone to uh, rash behavior uh, and, and extreme behavior. And as, as awful as things have been under Putin, uh, there's always someone worse lurking in the wings. Uh, there are also people much better lurking in the wings, but who would, who would win out? Uh, that that is not at all predictable, not at all. Um, when um, when we come back, I, I still want to talk about this, but I would also like to touch on the developments that we have seen in the conflict in Gaza. It was um, about an hour before I went on the air. The Red Cross announced that eleven more hostages had been turned over to their custody. They were going to take them to Israel. The, they were where they were going to be checked out uh, in a hospital. Um, while their identities, at least as far as I know, haven't been released, uh, supposedly their families have been notified. So we've got that going on. Plus, we have a visit to Israel um, by everybody's uh, favorite a Jewish supporter, Elon Musk which uh, is a real head-scratcher, if you ask me. Joel Ostro and I are going to talk about all these things when we come right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And I'm joined by Benedictine University political science professor Joel Ostro. You may have seen uh, that Elon Musk uh, was hanging out with uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, Elon Musk, who has uh, taken... A lot of heat recently because he has been amplifying anti-Semitic posts on X, formerly Twitter, the social media site that he bought and uh, promptly <laughs> started taking apart. What do you think is going on here, Joel, with um, Elon Musk? coming to Israel to tour the country? Uh, 
Elon Musk is just a younger version of Trump and a more uh, successful business person than Trump, a much wealthier person than Trump. Uh, but Elon Musk cares about Elon Musk and nothing else. Uh, and in that, uh, when it comes to uh, anything having to do with politics, all he cares about is his own uh, power. He's a megalomaniac, really, uh, as best I can tell. And so his only purpose to going to Israel is to uh, try to protect himself. I don't think he gives gives a hoot about anyone else, about any other country, about any other people, about anyone else's well-being. Uh, and so to the extent that he was worried about some kind of backlash against his own economic interests, uh, perhaps he thinks that um, uh, being seen uh, talking to Netanyahu will somehow uh, help to alleviate that. Uh, but I agree but with frankly, you that he only cares about himself. But do you think supposedly Netanyahu not only took him around and showed him the country, but they also showed him some of the yet-to-be-released video from the October 7th attack where he could see uh, the atrocities as they were being committed? You know, it's always all about them. But I've noticed with Trump that if somebody puts in, him into a position where he actually sort of feels something, that sometimes he can either modify his stance or change direction. Again, not because he's doing it for anybody's good, but because he reacted a certain way, and therefore that must be the way to react. Do you see what I'm saying? Do you think it had any effect on him? I can really only think of one or two instances where that happened with Trump. But I think, uh, I mean, it's hard. Like, I, I mean, I never met the man, uh, Elon Musk. Uh, he's, in some ways, just a very strange character. Very uh, strange. But, but to tell you the truth, uh, there's, there's been enough reporting on uh, Hamas's attacks on October 7th uh, that... If Netanyahu truly believes that showing him some kind of graphic images is going to fundamentally change who he is as a person, uh, then Netanyahu is more deranged than I thought, and that's saying a lot, uh, because I'm not a fan at all. Um, and uh, regardless, I don't see how how showing a video of of the Hamas's butchery on October 7th, whether that happened or not, it seems clear that Musk's anti-Semitism is, is obvious. Uh, it, it doesn't have anything to do with Hamas's attacks. It, it has to do with who he is as a person and, and the kinds of messages that he's amplified. Uh, and this isn't the first uh, piece of evidence about questioning his, let's just say, in general, his his ethics, his moral values, uh, he lacks them to the same extent that Trump does. Um, it's just about self-aggrandizement. That's all he cares about. And, and, and enrichment, obviously. I don't believe He's a that, dangerous character. Oh, I think he's, I think he's very dangerous. Yeah. I don't believe that the people who don't like Elon Musk are suddenly going to wake up one day and go, oh, look at that. He really yeah, right. cares. He went to Israel. I, I don't feel that way. I don't feel that way at all. 
I mean, maybe this was a way for Netanyahu just to remind him, you know, that we're watching. The world is watching. You're not making these ridiculous posts in a vacuum that there are people who are affected by this. Right. And, 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 And on the flip side, nothing that's going on or that he will see or experience on this or any other issue is going to suddenly make him develop the capacity for empathy or compassion for others. Right. Right. Um, so, so what yeah. do you, well, let's switch gears to the other news, the, um, the hostage swap, because it's not just a hostage release. Uh, the apparent agreement was 50 hostages for 150 Palestinians. They're all going to be women and children. Uh, this morning we heard there was 17 confirmed, 11 more this morning, and uh, the temporary truce has been extended for another 48 hours as long as Hamas keeps coughing up hostages. We're, and Israel keeps coughing up yeah, Palestinian prisoners. On a three-to-one basis. On a three-to-one yeah. basis. It's probably... Um, probably uh, a good deal from Israel's perspective, uh, because quite clearly uh, you know, Israel holds thousands and thousands of Palestinians, uh, underage Palestinians, um, many who are simply family members of those who uh, were planning or had been suspected of or accused of carrying out terrorist attacks, um, and uh, Three to one strikes me as, as probably the minimum legitimate ratio. Um, I'm a little surprised that Hamas agreed to that, uh, and whoever else that Israel was negotiating with agreed to that. Um, so, whatever can get uh, the hostages released that that Hamas and Islamic Jihad are holding is a good thing. It remains unclear to me whether. Uh, the, I think, believe it was 240 or somewhere around that was the figure at the beginning of, 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 of these negotiations. And I don't think really knows how many of those are hostages whose release Hamas could independently arrange. In other words, there are other organizations that, that don't report to the Hamas leadership. It's unclear uh, whether they will ever be a part of this, uh, these deals or not. Well, that's kind of what I wanted to talk to you about. I've never, you know, Hamas is not like, uh, you know, the U.S. Army or, you know, the Israeli Defense Forces. It is a much, much more poorly organized and coordinated. So is it possible that there are groups holding hostages that are not a part of these negotiations and never will be? Uh, to the first part, it's 100% certain. Uh, we already know that. It's been reported on. Uh, the question is whether they will see uh, an interest, uh, given the release of the Palestinians on the Israeli side, whether they will see an interest in joining uh, in joining in this process. Um, and I don't know. It's possible we'll never know for sure who was being held by whom on the, on the Palestinian side of things. Um, I don't know that I would say poorly organized, but I would say loosely organized, and there are a variety of organizations, some of whom fall under uh, the Hamas 
leadership umbrella within Gaza and some that act more independently. Uh, so that's the reality of the situation. Uh, obviously, Israel and the United States and the international community don't care. We want all of those hostages released. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, time will tell, right? Uh, but every time several- these, yeah. it, it is a very good sign because uh, it, it seemed that there were some glitches as of this morning uh, that, that the, the truce might not hold and that these releases might, might stop. Uh, so it's a very good sign that an extension was announced this afternoon. I believe it was early afternoon, um, and hopefully that can continue. We, we shouldn't expect that this will be without, without bumps, without mistakes, without uh, unkept promises. And there needs you know, there, there's going to be promises of hostages being released who end up not being released for the reasons we just talked about. Uh, and there needs to be understanding and, and uh, tolerance uh, for that uh, on both sides. Uh, and time will tell whether whether that emerges, uh, but that'll be a healthy sign if if it does turn out to be the case. There were reports immediately after the terrorist attack of that that the taking of hostages like wasn't part of the plan. That they that that might have been um, a spontaneous thing that happened amongst some of the terrorists that day. Have we ever gotten any more solid information on that? Anything that you know of? No, I, certainly nothing I know of. I had not heard those reports, and and I would that that would be eye opening to me. Uh, that in the year plus of training that Hamas conducted uh, for the October seventh operation, that that hostage taking wasn't a part of it. Uh, I I feel like, although it's several weeks now, but I feel like in in some of those. Initial reports when when the um, uh, the operational manuals, if you will, had been <laughs> seized, that uh, that uh, taking of hostages was explicitly part of of what the plan was, and it certainly makes sense because um, certainly Hamas knew that they weren't going to conquer the government of Israel. Uh, they knew that they were going to be repelled and and pushed back uh, into Gaza, which is, was the case. Uh, and taking hostages certainly gives them longer-term leverage uh, when Israel began to pulverize them, which they also knew Israel was going to do. Uh, so, um, it, this it is made something that you and sense. I have talked about before. But hmm. do you think that they thought that this attack would be the start of something bigger? That Hezbollah would join them? Um, that, um, you know, that maybe Iran would make a move because everybody knows that Israel fights fire with fire. Um, and I don't understand. They fight a match with a nuclear bomb. There you go. That's an even better. Yeah, that's an even better analogy. So other than just poking. The and excuse bear, me, I'm sorry to interrupt, but not to say that October 7th was a match. Yeah, that, that that's unfair. Uh, but Israel is known for disproportionate response, and they make no secret of it. Yes, um, and it's so, not and it's not an irrational posture for Israel to take, given given the circumstances. So, so looking at these plans, do you think it was just uh, let's poke the bear because we can, or let's start something and everybody else will join in and we'll get rid of Israel once and for all? Probably somewhere in between. Uh, well, certainly part of uh, Hamas's uh, um, 
charter and and it, it calls for the uh, eradication of the state of Israel. Uh, if they thought, I don't think. Now, I would assume that the leaders of Hamas are, in their own way, rational thinkers and 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 uh, able organizers. They've certainly demonstrated themselves to be capable organizers, um, capable of planning complex operations. If they thought that Iran was going to get militarily involved directly, uh, that suggests uh, an absence of rational thinking uh, or understanding um, of really anything about politics in the Middle East. Um, but they certainly anticipated a massive response by Israel in Gaza um, that would fuel um, and, and embolden the illegal settlers to wage attacks uh, in the West Bank uh, and uh, uh, across Lebanon that would, um, that would then bring Hezbollah into the fight and, and I think they did hope for a wider conflagration uh, that could, uh, in a sense, strengthen their, their position. Uh, and it's not impossible that that could still unfold because much of, much of those events have happened. And um, I wouldn't say this, and I hope none of my Lebanese friends are listening, but Israel has responded with a bit more restraint in its, in its actions against Lebanon, probably knowing that they're responsible for those attacks that Israeli, the illegal settlers are responsible for the fighting that's going on uh, in, in non-Gaza regions uh, of, this, of this current set of conflicts. Um, those settlements are a big problem, uh, and, and they're going to have to be undone if any lasting peace is to come. I'm speaking with political science professor Joel Ostro. We are going to take a break and be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm talking with political science professor Joel Ostro from Benedictine University. And uh, there was an article in the Washington Post, Joel, that perfectly reflected something that you had said much earlier. Here's the headline. Netanyahu and Hamas depended on each other. Both yep. may be on the way out. You were the one who said that there was this symbiotic relationship that they both mm. sort of they both needed an enemy and they provided that for each other. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always said that that this conflict, this terrorist attack, once the dust settles, it is uh, going to be the absolute end of Netanyahu's career. What do you think about this um, this article? Uh, it won't. The only way it changes anything on the ground is if it's more than just the end of Netanyahu. The problem in Israel is the extreme right, uh, and that, in terms of politics, is a harder thing to shift. Um, but uh, but just like in our own politics, uh, which lacks a a reasonable and um, shall we say responsible center, uh, Israeli politics seem to lack that as well. Um, or all they have is a center and an extreme right, uh, with the extreme right being overly powerful. Um, I'm not familiar enough with contemporary Israeli politics to, to comment. It seems to me there's a center, but not really a very much of a thriving progressive uh, political wing right now, well, compared to, say, the 90s or the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what, that is the problem. I mean, Netanyahu is simply a 
uh, figure of the extreme right in Israel, which he helped to create, um, uh, which I, I would, I would, the equivalent we have here is not Trump. The equivalent is McConnell, who helped create that extreme right, um, uh, and and is very much a, 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 a signature leader of that extreme right uh, in our own country. But that's about where the analogy ends. But um, one thing so, that I know so, that you, but yes, I, I think the end of the conflict d- does. If there's any hope for the future, that the extremism on both sides, the violent extremism on both sides, has to has to give way to mutual acceptance. Let's put it that way. One of the things that you have talked about and we have talked about before is the language that is being used, no matter what anybody's position is on on this conflict, that it is extreme. Uh, speaking of no center, mm-hmm. uh, it seems like the language has been particularly polarizing. Why do you think that is? Uh, I think it is because uh, politics in the digital age have become uh, wildly polarized, and this is a polarizing issue with a lot of violence and a lot of passion on both sides that uh, has been going on for decades and, and doesn't show any sign of, of uh, receding. Um, in particular, uh, among um, uh, activists, both in academia and outside, uh, those who are uh, supporting the Palestinian cause have invoked this phrase from the river to the sea, Palestine shall be free. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there is certainly a root meaning to that, uh, dating back to uh, the original creation of Israel and, and the first wars uh, in the late 40s and 50s, um, where that phrase meant the eradication of Israel and the elimination of the Jews from, from that land. Um, and so today you hear uh, Jews, many, responding to that call from the river to the sea, Palestine shall be free, as uh, calling for a Holocaust a genocide against Jews. Um, that's rather unfair, uh, because from the river to the sea, Palestine should be free. Today uh, is a call for uh, freedom uh, and, and equality and rights for uh, the Palestinian people, whether within uh, a united democratic Israel or uh, in a multi-state solution. Um, but one can, can empathize with the rights of all people to live with freedom, equality, and justice, and that concept not being genocidal. Uh, So if someone who is supporting Israel is going to continue to condemn uh, that notion from the river to the sea as being genocidal, then they must also accept that Zionism is genocidal, which there was always a strain of Zionism that contained thoughts that, and, and expressions and ideas that one could call genocidal, whereas most Jews t- today want to see Zionism as Israel has a legitimate right to exist as a state and as a Jewish state. So if you want Zionism to mean that, then from the river to the sea, Palestine must be free, has to mean that Palestinians get to be free. Uh, and on the flip side, for my Palestinian friends, if you are going to be anti-Zionist, 
<laughs> then it is reasonable to then uh, anticipate a reaction to your own uh, call as 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 being uh, hostile. The flip side of that is is what I was saying: the prospect for a lasting peace uh, it has to be a, a mutual recognition of of right to exist. Um, at number one, and then once that right to exist and and forswearing terrorism uh, and violence against civilians on both sides, then then a possibility for a negotiated settlement emerges, as was the case with the Oslo Accords in, in the early 90s. Um, and in my teaching, I often hear, and I, I teach at a university which has a very large Muslim population, but even among non-Muslims, uh, there are expressions now of doubt that there can ever be peace uh, between uh, Israel and its its neighbors, including the Palestinians. And I refer back, you know, if you had told someone in France in 1945 that a mere 45 years later, uh, Germans could freely cross the border and and set up businesses and own property and, and live in France freely, uh, that there would be a single currency, that basically there would be no border between the two countries with free flow of peoples between France and Germany, who had been on and off warring for over a thousand years uh, with German occupation by Nazis uh, for several years in the mid-1940s, late 1940s. If you, if you had said that Two generations later, there would be no border between the two. People would have said you're nuts, yeah. uh, and the French would have would have wanted to kill you for even suggesting the thought. Uh, and um, it is possible. Uh, the, the, the economic interests, the security interests, uh, are the same for Palestinians as they are for Jews. And, and all it, what it takes is for. Uh, for all of those on, on both sides to, to imagine that sameness, because it's not hard to imagine. You know, I, one thing I've noticed, and I know we don't have a lot of time, so I shouldn't be doing this, but I'm doing it anyway. I'm starting on this. Um, one thing I've noticed is that some people uh, use the term Zionist as a way of denoting uh, somebody really radical. Like, you know, I, I support Israel and I support the Jewish people. I just don't support Zionism. And, you know, it's like the word progressive. Unless you get the person using the word to give you their definition, it's almost mm-hmm. meaningless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and really in the modern context and the way people use it and the way uh, people oppose the concept, um, it it raises questions because of because of the things that follow the invocation that that there's something else buried underneath, uh, either denying Israel's right to exist or suggesting that something uh, really ugly thoughts about um, Arabs at a minimum, Muslims at a maximum. Uh, there there is no shortage of. Um, I hate to use the word evil, but uh, evil thinking uh, on both sides. And, and if that weren't the case, uh, we wouldn't see the kind of violence and, and the, the brutality and butchery committed uh, by both uh, Palestinians and uh, Israelis. Um, 
Well, as usual, Joel Ostro and I are ending on a high note. We want you always you to ask good. those questions at the end. <laughs> <laughs> we want you to feel good about yourself this Monday night. Joel, thank you. Thank you. It is always a delight to talk with you. Appreciate your time. Always a pleasure. No, thank you. Thank you, Joan. Uh, that's going to do it for me. Driving it home with Patty Vasquez is next. I'll see you tomorrow at 2. Have a great evening, my friends. Good night. Oh, 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 oh,